0: Welcome to the VertiGuys Show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the VertiGuys. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three Sandman, Preacher, Hellblazer. And in the process, we hope to check out the dark side of DC. Another good point. Today we are talking about Hellblazer. Issues 59 through 61. Did I get that right? That's correct. Yay! This is the Guys and Dolls Storyline Plus, a third issue entitled. She's buying a stairway to heaven, which is essentially the continuation of that storyline. That's a musical reference to something, but I'm not sure what. Led Zeppelin. You do that. Yeah, no, that it has a different title. Supposedly we get part one, part two, and then a third unrelated issue. But if you read them, it's clearly a three part story. Right. So I want to give props to us for choosing to cover them all in the same episode. Very insightful of us. Yeah, I think so. We made the right call. (laughs) We're getting better at this all the time. So, (laughs) previously in Hellblazer, John Constantine had pissed off the devil, or one of the devil figures of the DC Universe, the first of the fallen, by tricking him into curing his cancer, and then arranging it so that he couldn't kill him because a war in hell would result. Yeah, prior to that, he pissed him off by cheating him out of Brendan Flynn's soul. Yeah, that's true too. And... Like glassing him, I think, and throwing him uh, into a fountain of holy water. The, yeah, it was very rude. It was not acceptable. <laughs> and then giving him the finger. <laughs> or it would not have been if he weren't the devil. <laughs> I have a hard time having sympathy for the devil in this series. That's a music reference too, isn't it? <laughs> Hang on, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, it's also worth noting that John has a buddy. Uh, we're going to find this out pretty soon, but a friend by the name of Sean Tanel who is a succubus. We already know that. She showed up in Dangerous Habits. Yeah, one of the many mystical people he went to for help with his cancer that wasn't able to help. Yeah. Or not inclined to. Or a mixture of both. Oh, and John had a run-in with the Queen of Succubi, Triskeel. Yes, that happened recently. It seemed to us to be a standalone story. But Triskeel is back. Yeah, which, spoiler, that Triskeel is back in this issue. Sorry, everybody. Do you want to talk about this cover by Glenn Fabry? Yeah, so this is a nice cover. We're talking about Hellblazer number 59. Yeah, we've got the first brooding, and beside him, hey, it's Triskiel. She is a beautiful woman's head on a sort of snake skeleton. Yeah, just a really long vertebra. The first of the fallen here is he appears to be nude, except for a very devilish cape. Yeah. And it makes him look quite imposing. Also, behind him. Are mountains with faces. Oh, it's Mount Woe. Is that what that is? No, that's from Star Wars. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's you, not, wait, wait, you don't want a lesson from Wikipedia, the Star Wars wiki? <laughs> I mean, I do listen to a podcast about that. But I don't. I can't retain it. Not Not today and not from you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so this issue was written by garth ennis it does not have art by steve Dillon. it has art by will simpson instead mm-hmm. they've almost sort of been alternating storylines on this book true inks are by mike barrero and kim demulder colors are by tom zuiko letters by gaspar and it was edited by stuart moore so we open on Chantanelle lounging in her garden in hell we learn that these flowers, like all of these flowers that she has are damned souls and they're all kind of moaning in despair, and she just loves that. And I really like the design of this place, you know, Chantanelle's Domain. This is kind of a garden growing in the midst of a ruined church. It's a very striking location, kind of Sector 5-esque. Yeah, Final Fantasy 7 reference. This scene is spoiled by the arrival of the First of the Fallen. An angry, nearly naked man. Who is the First of the Fallen? He's wearing a bit more clothing than on the cover. I saw your notes, and they just say Image Comics, which actually really sums it up. (laughs) Yeah, um, we have these two panels where Shantanel reacts to the first's presence, and he is furious looking, and she's got this amazing swirl of hair with all these different strands, and he's got just a ton of chiaroscuro on his face, and it really struck me as, like, Michael Turner, Mark Silvestri-style. Oh, yeah, no, this this whole arc is so Mark Silvestri. Yeah. It's Will Simpson, but it's, yeah, it's very Mark Silvestri. Yeah, he has a ton of lines on his face, and I didn't know if that just meant he was moody, or if he had painted his face, or if he had accidentally blown himself up like Daffy Duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the fire down there. It's hard to avoid it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine, like, the, the hijinks that go on in this version of Hell. And I'm, just, I'm just picturing him walking along, and Hell's getting blasted with sulfur every other step. Right. Like the Rancor pit on the Super Nintendo. So she can immediately tell that he's pissed. And she runs. Yeah, and she takes a huge leap. And it seems like he grabs a piece of her hair here, which just rips out as she jumps away. Yeah, I was sure that was going to be important, but it hasn't been yet. Right. You know, hair is often used in sympathetic magic. It's a way to form a connection with a person. So I thought it would be significant that he had her hair in some way. And she jumps between worlds. She shatters what appears to be a glass barrier and leaves a star design. Is that a pentagram? Yeah, this is a really awesome page, actually. Her jumping through this breaking glass between dimensions, leaving this pentagram in her wake. It's cool. We don't really know why he's mad. I assume it has something to do with her being friends with Constantine? Yeah. This is where we get our title, Guys and Dolls Part 1 fallen women. And on Earth, she flies through the face of Big Ben. Yeah, that's the mortal plane equivalent of the glass she jumped through. And lands in the Thames. But she's safe. We see her floating in the Thames amid all these, like, ruined Volkswagens. Yeah, just, it's full of garbage. Yeah. John Constantine, meanwhile, has been up all night thinking and listening to his girlfriend Kit sleep. He thinks that he's done with weird shit. This is something we've been coming back to over and over again in Garth Ennis run. But he's got a voice in the back of his head that says, "Bullock's son. Yeah, this sort of ghost of himself, with this vision of himself, appears Looking to him. extra dapper, yeah. And is like, ha ha, fuck you. <laughs> that makes John Constantine one of, of two characters who is haunted by visions of John Constantine saying, fuck you. <laughs> The other one being the first? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As, okay. as we'll see later. Yeah, I mean, this is a conflict that we keep going back to, this question of, like, is he actually trying to avoid weird shit and it just keeps finding him, or is that his life? Is that what he enjoys? Right. Generally, the comic kind of comes down on the conclusion that it's all his fault, despite the actual events that were shown being things that he uh, <laughs> clearly did not ask for. Yeah, this is this is true. And we've talked before about the sort of the, burden of knowledge that John has, that he has difficulty avoiding, you know, helping people out of supernatural situations, although he often gets them killed helping them out of a supernatural situation, just because he has this knowledge, he can't ignore what's going on around him. So he decides he can't get out of the life because he has too many old scores. Yeah, he specifically mentions the first of the fallen, who uh, we've kind of recapped their history. He also mentions the king of the vampires, who we call Kev. Oh yeah, Kev from Hellblazer number 50. Yeah, who tried to recruit him into the life, and who he also kind of gave the finger to. Yeah. It's very irritating to all these supernatural powers how he keeps exercising cleverness and rudeness against them. So, back in Hell, we got the first, catching up with Triskeel. I know you're in there, Worm Queen! Come out of your hole before I cut your heart from your carcass. And she does in silhouette this head at the top of this snake skeleton. My first of the fallen, my sweet lord of hell, what troubles you, my love? You do, you whore! Jesus. Come into a person's house and call them that? Yeah, he's like, he's being, obviously he's a bad, he's a bad guy. He's a bad, bad man. Well, he's the devil. Yes, he is the devil. But he's being like super misogynist in these first few pages. Like, we saw him kind of, like, nakedly attack a nearly naked woman <laughs> in the opening couple of pages. Yeah, and there's a kind of, it's just implied, but there's a kind of gross implication as to what specifically he's going to do if he catches Chantanelle. It was all over his face, what he wanted, what he was planning to do, what he'd do to her. Well, yeah, and I think even more gross is kind of the implication that because she's a succubus, if the comic's not saying she would deserve it, it's at least kind of saying that it would be an appropriate fate. Mm. Kind of. Ironic. Right. Yeah. And now he's he's also being like very sexually violent with Triskeel here. Yeah. So he is pissed at Triskiel because she is the Queen of Succubi. Chantanelle works for her and Chantanelle has defied him. And then escaped from hell, which is even worse. Right. She knows the enemy, you said. Feel free to use her against him, you said. I didn't know. How could I? Where is she? I never knew how she met your adversary. I didn't know it mattered. I didn't know they were so close. She'll be with him! And the first of the fallen realizes what this means and grumbles that it's too soon. He is not yet prepared for another confrontation with Constantine. Right. For obvious reasons, he doesn't want to instigate that until he's sure he can win. Yeah, he's, he's been hanging out and planning, and he's not ready yet. Yeah. Well, I had written No Danny, which I guess I was surprised not to see Danny specifically among the sufferers in Triskeel's domain. That would have been a nice little nod. Danny Drake. Yes. Yeah. So we get back to John Constantine. He is down on the street. And I wasn't actually quite sure about the sequence of events here and how he comes to find Chantanelle and how he knows where she is. Okay, yeah. So Constantine's just checking out the river and he says maybe do a bit of fishing. Yeah, this old man asks him why he's standing out in the cold looking at the river and Constantine jokingly says that he's thinking of doing some fishing. Which... Of course, it's ridiculous because the river is full of garbage. And, right. And no fish live in it. And also yeah. it's very low. So we get a mostly visual sequence of events as he kind of walks through the mud at the base of the river. He picks up a bit of cloth and smells it. And he follows this trail of footprints into a pipe where he finds Chantanelle hiding. Yeah, as he's, as he's following the footprints, he jokingly comments that it's three men and two horses, one with a limp. Yeah, I have written here kind of silly, so I guess I also felt like, how the hell did he find her? But okay, he's found her. He not only finds her, he acts as though she has come to him. That's kind of an interesting point, yeah. She says that she's in trouble and needs help, to which he replies, Try the snob. Right, calling back her refusal or inability to help him with his cancer. Right, that was the advice that she gave him. It was not helpful advice in dangerous habits. Yeah. Now, she says that the first wants to get to John through her. Yeah, she also mentions she's been thinking that she's never going to be able to go home. She also mentions that she hurt herself so badly jumping between worlds that she's never going to fully heal. Hmm, okay, yeah. So it's a thing she can do, but at great cost. John, hearing of her problem, thinks to himself, Here we go, Kit. Sorry. Right, because now he's, he's back in. She makes the first of many references to how they met what happened we're going to come back to that real soon yeah and there's as she's thinking here we kind of see her remembrance of a an angel getting fried yeah flaming skeletal angel she's worried about Triskeel as well yeah she says i want to live john he says join the club love so they walk um, off together that problem yet to be solved which yeah that she wants to live he wants to live they're both kind of trying their best to, uh, save their own asses from the powers of hell. Yeah. They're sort of in the same boat now, which he has explicitly called out by calling back to her advice. Meanwhile, in hell, we have a discussion, including references to Lucifer. Right. Yeah. He kind of discusses how Lucifer used to be in charge of hell until he got bored and gave it up. We saw that in the pages of Sandman. Yeah. Yeah. This should surely be your time of triumph. The fallen angel is long since gone, and hell is yours, Tricefield says. Or as much of it will ever be mine with my two wretched brothers here. That would be the second and third, who we saw in Dangerous Habits. That's right. Couple of kooky characters. Yeah, so it seems like one of the purposes of this story is a little bit of connecting the dots with the mythology of hell in DC Comics. When we first met the first, it was just like, this is the devil, okay? Yeah, Garth Ennis is really kind of going out of his way in this issue to connect the cosmology that he has started to build with the one that we saw in Sandman and the one that we saw in Swamp Thing. Yeah. So Treskiel says to just ignore his grudge with Constantine. Just have fun. And he is so angry at that that he slaps her face clean off. Right my face give it back my lord please give me my face did dariel beg thus when you tore it from his skull so we learn now that this beautiful face that triskel wears is actually stolen from an angel yeah i just assumed it was i don't know who dariel is but it sounds like an angel name to me yes the l specifically refers to god oh okay He says, Until Constantine's soul hangs drawn and quartered on the walls of Dis, I will not allow hell to rest an instant. Remember that, and be thankful. He goes on to say, What is hell coming to, I often wonder? Six years ago, we fought alongside the blessed host in the war against Shadow. Tricky little Etrigan wore the horned crown, albeit briefly. That is a reference to the events of Swamp Thing number 50. Mm, Okay. A landmark issue in the Alan Moore run. Yeah, I remember reading that Etrigan had become temporarily ruler of hell alongside a triumvirate of his own. And to top it all, Lucifer swore vengeance on Morpheus for public insult. And Morpheus came back to hell defenseless, a perfect fruit so ripe for plucking. And the Morning Star? He quit! That is obviously recapping the events of the first couple of story arcs of Sandman. Yeah, Season of, uh, of Mists specifically. And this is calling out the difference between the first and Lucifer. Lucifer ruled Hell, but he kind of always thought that there was something better out there for him. He had higher ambitions than that. And indeed, at the you know that story arc of Sandman, he leaves and goes on to have his own comic book in which he pursues them. The first is just vindictive. Yeah, he's not a fallen angel. He's pure evil. And as we will be told, the kind of day-to-day. Workings of hell, the evil sausage making. Yeah. Is, is really his <laughs> forte. He does not bore of it. Right, yeah. So, first is wondering what he's going to do about Chantanelle. And we see that Constantine has been thinking the same thing. Can't take her home. I mean, what's Kit gonna say? Or think? Yeah, they have lied their way into a B and B where they are hiding out. And Chantanel has a line here that I found pretty funny. The real reason the devil hated Lucifer was that Lucifer always beat him at chess. Yeah, that's an interesting line. I mean, it's a funny line on its own, but it also kind of sets up that, like, we can use the devil as shorthand for First of the Fallen. True. Lucifer is a different dude. Yeah. And Lucifer is cleverer than the first was. The first is blinded by rage a lot of the time, I think. I wish it were the Lightbringer we were up against, John. He'd probably just get bored and forget about us. But this one, he has a long memory. What you've done to him, it can't be forgotten. John jokes, don't know why, I hardly raised a finger against him. That's obviously a reference <laughs> to, uh, to when he flipped him off at the end of uh, Dangerous Habits. Right. That most Constantine moment of Constantine moments. Yes, Ellie reminds Constantine that the devil is now more pissed at him than he is at Jesus Christ. The Christians say the Nazarene died for their sins, don't they? That he endured a thousand agonies? You'll die for your sins alone, and when he gets his hands on you, you'll beg for what the Christ brat got. She goes on explaining a little bit of the first history. You have to understand who this is, John. Lucifer got fed up with hell bargaining for souls, the war with heaven, spreading badness like cancer. All of it, but it's meat and drink to him. He just frigging loves it. You see, Lucifer fell, but when he got to the bottom, someone else was already there. And we actually see this in a couple of panels: Lucifer falling pained from heaven and the first grinning in the blackness beside him. Yeah, so he's really kind of putting the pieces together of, you know, his own version of hell matched up with Gaiman's version of hell. Yeah. So John agrees to help, but he says Ellie owes him already and she's gonna owe him more. No moaning, no bullshit about me asking for too much, no evil smiles and stupid bloody advice, Savvy? I, yes. Good, because one of these days, love, One of these days, I'm going to collect. And this last panel, look at all the lines on Constantine's face. It really reminded me of the first of the Fallen's face at the beginning of the issue. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's like the the evil plan's face. Yeah, yeah, Constantine has his own evil plan. His evil plan. (laughs) (laughs) And that leads us right into the next issue, Hellblazer number 60. So on the cover of this issue, we have... Oh, we have an angel-hugging, a red devilish-looking kind of lady. Yes. And they are hugging. I mean, literally, it's not, like, not really sexy. I'm not saying hugging is a euphemism. They're really just hugging. No, No, to quote from Neon Genesis Evangelion, we'll do the rest later, they are just hugging. And there's hellfire kind of behind them. Yep. Or at least sunfire. And this image is perhaps a little bit familiar to people who have been listening to us talk about Glenn Fabry, but we'll come back to that notion. Yeah, we we're gonna have to talk about that. It's all connecting, Sean. Yeah, this is the first three-way crossover of this Vertige series. So, John is planning in the pub. I have put planning in quotation marks because John Constantine. Planning bollocks. I don't have a plan. Then we flashback to 1984, what he describes as the good old days. Or, no, I guess I've described it that way. He doesn't describe it that way. <laughs> he's, he's having a terrible time. Never mind. <laughs> well, he says he was almost living up to his image. Newcastle was a bad memory. The bog god was coming to the boil. That's a reference to his relationship of kind of stringing Swamp Thing along. Yeah. In his earliest appearances as a as a supporting character in that comic book. And four days before Christmas, there's a knock at the door. So at the door, we see a blonde guy and a pregnant brunette. And they need help. She's wearing overalls. Yeah. Truly is. demonic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they ask for John Constantine's help. And he kind of makes a reference to the Nativity story. And we get the title here, which is Nativity Infernal. And also, there's a big star above them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. He steps out of his door a little bit. This is slim, young Constantine, who's moving around like Tamaki from a host club. And... Deep cut. And I want to point out here that the title is Nativity Infernal, but the last issue said No Room at the Inn, which is actually a better title. <laughs> yeah, but there's this, um... What do you want to call it? There's this big Christmas star above them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no shit. John is joking with them. He's not super interested in helping them. It's nearly Christmas. I meant to be meeting my mates for a drink and there's a flash of bright yellow heaven light. And the angel Tally here reveals both himself and Ellie's true forms. Yep, he's got feathered wings and is covered in glimmering chain mail. Yeah, he's wearing those sandals with like the straps that loop up your legs. Yep, she's got bat wings and clawed toes and is still very pregnant no longer in overalls though yeah i mean she's basically got just a shift here which do you think is a worse outfit (laughs) overalls are a worse outfit john okay so 90s (laughs) (laughs) how did this happen john asks i was trying to be clever that's all says ellie no succubus has ever snared one of the host but our sole task is seduction and to me it seemed too good to miss Right, she seduced him, but accidentally she fell in love. And in case it wasn't clear here, the she is Ellie, Chantanelle. Yeah, I think we already knew that she was a demon, but maybe that was just us reading in. Well, we certainly saw her chilling in hell last issue, but even back in Dangerous Habits... that she was a succubus. Yeah, even back in Dangerous Habits, there's a dialogue about, like, you're pretty nice for what you are, and she says, I'm not nice, I'm just polite. Right, yes, that's right. That's that's what I meant. Obviously, last issue established that she was a demon. Yeah. But I think we kind of already knew it from Dangerous Habits, although I can't really remember if it's made explicit in Dangerous Habits. She's got, like, glowing red eyes at one point. Okay. Well, that's pretty explicit. I mean, or she's just a Mark Silvestri mutant. <laughs> <laughs> she's related to Gambit. Yeah, exactly. So... Ellie tried to seduce the angel. She caught feelings. He was perfect. I saw into his soul. Innocent, stainless, something I could never be. How could I hurt him? And then Tally's got some poetry about his encounter with Chantanelle. I watched her. She danced on the limbo breeze beyond beauty. This is, like, really familiar right now. Yeah, dancing on the thermals of hellfire is the way he described it in uh, Preacher? Yeah, and we get this panel now of them actually doing the deed. Yeah. And this is all extraordinarily similar to, if it hasn't been clear yet, the origin of Genesis from Preacher. This half-demonic, half-angelic creature that has possessed Jesse Custer was born from an angel and a demon. Yeah, if you haven't been listening to our Preacher episodes, if you've been skipping those, you're gonna have to pause this, go back, and listen to them all right now. And we're back. (laughs) Okay, that's not true. That's probably not necessary. Sorry, if you already did it. (laughs) But good podcasts, right? So, John jokes with them. Now she's got a bun in the oven, eh? Don't they have rubbers in heaven? Gross! (laughs) He's such a classy motherfucker, isn't he? Now, for the record, kids, I'm not saying that condoms are gross. Like, you know, use condoms. (laughs) What are you saying is gross? Just, like... Their music condoms is gross. Like, the fact that, like, they're, like, celestial supernatural beings, and uh, John just brings it right back down to the mundane. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of a prick. (laughs) He comments that this is like guys and dolls only everyone has wings, except that's... Not what the plot of Guys and Dolls was about at all. This is Romeo and Juliet. I Yeah, I don't understand why this is called Guys and Dolls. Does he think that West Side Story is Guys and Dolls? That would actually explain a lot. (laughs) Yeah, Guys and Dolls is about a, a gangster who tries to get married to his longtime girlfriend as part of a cover to throw a craps game, and also bets another gangster that he can't Take a uh, a missionary. A, yeah, a nun of sorts, a missionary to Havana, and they accidentally fall in love. There's no there's no warring factions and guys and dolls. Yeah, there is the gangster or the gambler guy who ends up seducing and marrying the missionary. Okay, oh. yeah, maybe that's what he's referring to. Is like, but it really doesn't fit. Also, the way that you said it, I think, is funny because it could be interpreted as. Your version of the story being that Nathan Detroit and Sky Masterson fall in love. (laughs) And they accidentally fall in love. And they accidentally fall in love. That's what you said. I would probably watch that version. I know, it'd be a good movie. (laughs) So... (laughs) We write some new gay songs. I mean, gayer. So, don't talk shit about musical theater. I love Guys and Dolls. I think, you know what? It is well established on this podcast that I love Guys and Dolls. So, Ellie says, you're the only one who can help us, John. And John comments to us, well, Flattery will get you everywhere. Yeah, he narrates, she knew how to appeal to me, all right. Shit, it was her job. You want Johnny Constantine on your side? Well, Flattery will get you everywhere. So Chaz drives them to a creepy old house. Oh, poor long-suffering Chaz. And as they're driving, John thinks about his self-interest, how it would be really good for him to have an angel and a demon who owe him a favor, who could be his spies in heaven and hell. Yeah, there's also a little reference here. They know the house is empty because Joe Hollis kicked the squatters out last week. Joe Hollis is the kind of mob tough guy from the pub where I was born story. Right. He tries to run that couple out of the pub that they've been running forever, and uh, it does not go well for him. Yeah, so kicking squatters out is his business. It really doesn't go well for anybody. (laughs) No. (laughs) Once inside the house, John puts up pentagram sigils, which make the place invisible to hell. This is sort of an important game mechanic that we'll come back to later, but it's also his kind of major contribution to the story. Yeah. At this point, John and Chaz head to the pub once again to plan. Yeah, who are they? Asks Chaz. And John says, Romeo and Juliet on acid. To the pub, my son. Yeah, so Garth also sees the Romeo and Juliet parallel here. Yeah. Although he somehow apparently thinks that the guys and dolls one is more apt. (laughs) So John says he went to hell, or specifically, he went to Whitechapel Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Now, this would probably have more resonance if it was Ravenscar, but Ravenscar is not in London. It's a long drive. Right. John himself did some time in a mental hospital after the Newcastle incident. Yeah, it would make more sense if it was the actual mental hospital that was hell on earth for John. Yeah. But that's not where he goes. It turns out that he's been blackmailing the head nurse or the head doctor. I have written the admin. Well, he calls her a doctor. Okay. She's a doctor. I don't think that hospital administrators are usually MDs. Mm, okay. Um, although in comic books they usually are. You know, Jeremiah Arkham and whatnot. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Dr. Hindley. So he's here to speak to a guy named Clive who is a serial killer. Except I've... it's not really Clive at all. We learn that Clive had help from a demon in his murders. And that's who John is really here to talk to. How can I help you? By sudden off, I'm going to talk to Gout. Okay, Gout, the demon, says that Hell doesn't know anything about this. Yeah, and John almost fucks up real bad and tells him. Yeah, don't push it, you little turd. The tempter girl and the... Oh, sod it. You can piss off, Gout. I won't be needing you again. Got someone new. Yeah, and then Clive's back in the body. Clive asks him for a cigarette, John says. Here, I've changed my mind. Have one. You're very kind. May I have a light? No. So John gets back to the creepy old house. The door is broken. Dun, dun, dun. Gout didn't know. Hell hadn't woken up. So who did that leave? It's an attack by heaven. Episode one, angel attack. Yeah, Ellie is in labor. Ellie is in the midst of giving birth. Yeah, this is weird because the door is broken, but when John Constantine gets there, the angels don't seem to be there yet. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a panel here that I found really funny where she's in the midst of giving birth and the angel, Tally, is like shoving this blanket over her so that the camera doesn't see her nakedness. Like, way to go, angel. Fight for the decency standards in comic books. Right. (laughs) Somebody's got to uphold the Comics Code Authority. And you know John Constantine (laughs) is not doing his Yeah, the angel is here on behalf of S&P. You! You bastard! You put this in me and it's tearing me apart! Chantanelle, no, I love you. Bullshit! John Constantine opines that he's been told giving birth is like shitting a football. Which is a memorable line. Yeah, he's remarkably clueless at this point. He's placed the concealment spells and he really has no idea what to do now. He uh, he at least seems to have more sympathy than uh, Tally. Okay, okay. For the fact that Ellie is going through something physically grueling. Mm-hmm. Just then somebody arrives, and it is seven angels in hooded cloaks. We get a full page spread of this. This is kind of effective. Yeah, and the next page also has no dialogue as Tally looks at them, he knows what he's in for, and then he gets totally shredded to pieces by heaven energy. Yeah. Kinda like the angel that got captured by the Grail, and that issue of Preacher. Also kind of like if you cast holy in Final Fantasy games. Except if this were a Final Fantasy game, he would have resistance to holy damage. Probably even absorb it. You're right. It's not like that at all. I just wanted to mention Final Fantasy games. Fair enough. So this mystery is solved. Tally is the angel set aflame, and he burns to a crisp, and he's done. Ellie cries out his name as she watches him die. And John just huddles in a corner with his hands over his face. He's not dealing with any of this right now. In the end, she went through it alone. They watched, all of them. The Angel of Mercy, too. They watched. Yeah, he says he's heard a lot of bad sounds in his life, including a banshee, a burning seraph's howl, the teeth of hell clenching shut on an innocent soul. That would be Astra. Yeah. But the one that sticks with him the most is the birth scream of the thing that wasn't meant to be. Whatever it was, they took it away. I pray to God they killed it. I hope it's still alive. Yeah, so contradicting emotions there. Yeah, and if it's still alive, it would be Genesis. I'm not saying that there was a time when, like, maybe Ennis was actually considering doing Preacher in the DC Universe, and this would be the prequel for it, but he definitely had this idea floating around in his head for a while. Right. Yeah, who knows? Maybe if he had gotten his way, Preacher would have been a Hellblazer story arc. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure glad it isn't. Yeah. Because Preacher needs America. Yeah, I think I think preacher wouldn't be as effective if it couldn't fuck up the world it takes place in. Right. We have a fairly frightful image here of Ellie unconscious on the couch, her loins, lower reaches covered in blood, but she does survive this. Yeah, John Constantine brings us back up to the present. He says lots of water under the bridge since then. Thatcher's whelp is in charge of us now. He's talking about. John Major, you can Mm. tell from the trademark glasses of the guy on the television. Right. The 80s died, I beat the devil, Ellie made it home, and no one had missed her. With the masking sigils I'd drawn in the pentacle, she got off scot-free. That's the one she owes me for. Makes me feel like shit, but what can you do? So she asks what he's going to do, or rather what he's going to try. Yeah, and it seems like she's making sexual insinuations here. Because Constantine says, you must be really desperate to try shit like that with me, love. Right, there's a little exchange here, mostly nonverbal. She's seductive, he's bemused by it. But John's got an idea. One of those mad little ones that stew in your head and dare you to try them. He knows there's a war between him and the First of the Fallen coming, and he plans to be ready for it. Right. Meanwhile, in hell. Every time we get to say that, we should. So... The first is taunting someone. I don't care what he says. He may strut through hell like a painted king. He may swear vengeance till he's blue in the face. But Constantine will be Nurgle's prize. Walls have ears, literally. This is my hell now. I don't get bored, I don't forget. I know what happens here, and that's my power. So tell me, Nurgle, how does it feel to be mortal again? Oh, shit. And yeah, he is talking to what looks like a preteen boy in a hangman's noose—a very '80s X-Men looking preteen boy, which is to say that he's like a perfect physical specimen. I mean, <laughs> except for the fact that his arms have been torn off. He looks super muscular. Right. Okay, I see what you're getting at—that like emaciated, suffering people in X-Men in the '80s were were unreasonably as, beautiful. <laughs> we're drawn as supermodels, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So this is Nurgle, a previous villain of much repute, the villain of Newcastle, the one that John defeated in the whole neutral messiah story arc? Yes. First of the Fallen gives us a backstory here. He lets us know that Nurgle spent 10,000 years building himself up from being a mortal to being an archdemon, and Nurgle's not going to destroy him. He's just going to send him back to the beginning. Yeah. There's a little origin story for Nurgle here. Apparently he wasn't always a demon. They burnt you as a witch's boy, didn't they? When they found out how you played with their children. The first of the fallen is not taking much pleasure in his torment of Nurgle. His kind of revenge for the slights that Nurgle's been spreading all over town. Because he can't enjoy anything, not while he's haunted by his own personal devil, John Constantine giving him the finger. (laughs) Yep, we see once again the ghostly visage of John Constantine giving the finger with kind of a nice sweater on. (laughs) I really appreciate that they remembered the details of the sweater he was wearing. I mean, what do you think of this Nurgle situation? Do you think that this is just the first proving his badass bona fides by showing his dominion over the previous major villain? Or does he actually have some plan for taking down Constantine? Is Nurgle his ace in the hole? Yeah, with Garth Ennis, you never know. Mm -hmm. It could be in there just for flavor. Certainly lots of stuff that Garth Ennis writes is. Yeah. But it could also come back. We didn't expect Triskeel to come back, but she did. So, yeah, you never know when something's going to be important to the plot. Fair enough. He writes pretty dense stuff, actually. Yeah. He plots pretty carefully. Yeah, he covers a lot of ground. So, on the cover of Hellblazer number 61, she's buying a stairway to Heaven. You've got... Sort of exhausted-looking John. His shirt is half-tucked and covered in blood. Yep, he's got a scalpel in his hand. The significance of this image will become clear quite shortly. We open with two pages of very little dialogue as Constantine and Kit are lounging together at home. They just sort of check each other out, and then she climbs on top of him and they start making out. It's a nice moment. Yeah, this is really well done. Sort of nonverbal exchange between them that leads to lovemaking. Yeah, or at least some necking. (laughs) Elsewhere, presumably planning, we find Ellie in a bar. Yeah, planning or just stewing. She kind of doesn't know what to do, and she doesn't know what Constantine has in store for her. Yeah, borderline moping, almost. She remembers Tally. She still misses him. Yeah. She's jealous that John has someone. The sort of love of her immortal existence is lost. Now we flash back to the moment where Ellie told Tally she was pregnant. We cannot keep this hidden. Our masters will sense the child the moment it is born and slaughter us both. We will have to flee. I could not bear to leave heaven, Chantanelle. You don't know what it would be like for me. No, but then I'm just a demon. Yeah, she goes on to talk about what she loves about hell, and I really liked this part. You're an innocent, Tally. An innocent idiot. You don't know. Rhesus sunsets on a black horizon. A sinner's scream in a silence like ice. The caress of dead skin and the cowl of the night. Is it my fault that I like those things? That I was made as I was? That my heaven was hell? Yeah, I really like that description. There's a, almost an innocence to Ellie, the way she expresses it. The ways that she... And, and we saw this in the garden at the beginning of the first issue of this episode as well. The way that she has a love for hell that we don't see being expressed as malice yeah no it's true her enjoyment of the sinner's screams is given the form of like flowers blooming in the church yeah she appreciates a beauty that that an angel or a human couldn't see there and apparently she convinces tally with her argument because we, he says we have both lost our homes all we have now is each other for me That is paradise enough. And that brings us back to the bar where Ellie is downcast, remembering this. Yeah, I really like this transition too. What should be an embrace between the two, but instead we go right to Ellie downcast. Back in the First of the Fallen's palace, or I kind of thought it looked like a ship, especially when he had. I was going to say I thought it looked like a ship when he had Nurgle hanging from the masts, but I guess he was just hanging from an archway. Mm-hmm. so maybe it is just a palace not a ship yeah but for a minute i was visually interpreting it as a cool hellboat, which you know yeah i mean if you could hang out on a boat in hell as compared to anything else in hell it actually kind of reminds me of do you remember that part i think we played it together it was in gears of war 2 Where you're like underground and there's these big like subterranean airships going everywhere. I don't remember this. I know we did play that game together. Maybe it was in Gears 3, which I played with PK. Okay. So I'm not actually sure you saw it. Okay. Anyways. Triskeel is looking out the window. The first is sexist to her some more. Yeah, he's looking in a kind of scrying pool, which happens to be in a dude's guts. And the scrying pool is not turning up anything. Back on Earth, Constantine is buying surgical supplies from Chaz. Yeah, that's right. He's got a scalpel in his hand. You could have that. someone's head off with this bastard. He's examining... What? What is this thing? I call it a scalpel? No, no, no. The, the bigger one. Is that a is uh, that a spreader? Oh, oh. I I didn't pick this up. Okay, yeah. Uh, some people call it a geyser blade. I mean, I call it a sling blade, but... Sorry. Sean... <laughs> I don't know what this is. Particularly like a bone saw. Well, it's some kind of surgical implement. <laughs> the guy I'm played by Randy Macho Man Savage, just a regular bone saw. Bone saw. <laughs> yeah. So Chaz has a friend, or a friend of a girlfriend, a girlfriend of a friend, who stole these things from the hospital. John's buying them. Uh, what you want them for? Cutting someone open. Night, Chaz. Once again, you know, leaving Chaz out of the loop. He's probably safer out of the loop on this one. Okay, John shows up at the pub where Ellie's been hanging out. Ellie wonders what he's up to, what his plan is. You're not gonna like it, he informs her. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because Ellie realizes that when John has saved her, he's going to have some use for her. He's going to want something in return. Most people that John manipulates don't seem to have this awareness. She's She's got the same level of deviousness that he does. She's his equal in a way that we rarely see. Yeah. Anyway, the scrying pool finally turns something up. They find Ellie. Yeah, they see the house where Ellie is now staying. So they've apparently left the pub. The house happens to be the same one where she gave birth back in the 80s. Right. Familiar ground, John calls it. And the first of the fallen here is just as aware as Ellie is. That John is going to be able to use her against him. Right, yeah. Come on, Triskeel, she's your child. You're coming too. There's an interesting parallel here because John takes Ellie back to the site of her trauma to do this whatever he's got in mind. Back in Dangerous Habits, John went specifically to the flat he'd originally inhabited, the one that Nurgle wrecked, to do the ritual to manipulate the three devils to save himself yeah once again an abandoned house comes into play here mm-hmm. they clearly have some significance to garth Ennis, that he keeps bringing them up as the site of these confrontations between constantine and the first yeah and we can see that there's been no attempt at cleaning or reusing this house since it was uh, since John was first here in 1984, there's right. still... The blood from the birth is shown side by side with the blood from what Constantine and Ellie have just done. Yeah, and we see this packet of cigarettes in the midst of a pool of blood. The evidence of John's recent habitation. John is leaning against a wall here. He's got blood all over his clothes. And the first of the fallen comes around the corner and they have an epic glaring contest with each other. Yeah, this is the John from the cover. He's looking exhausted in his blood-spattered clothes. Jesus, he says to himself. Whatever he's just done off-screen was fairly harrowing. They glare. John smirks. The first glowers. Triskeel appears in a window behind John. She is now in the form of a skeleton, wearing a sort of Grecian dress. Yeah, almost like a Marilyn Monroe dress. What have you been doing here? Where is Chantanelle? She asks. You see anything dodgy while you were looking for her? Well, yes. A masking sigil obscured my view at the last instant, but. Yeah, it's on her. I cut it into her soul. That, we imagine, is what the scalpel was for. He cut the masking spell, sort of the similar one that he used last time, into Ellie's body or her soul, in fact, and now she is permanently masked from hell. Yeah, and apparently that takes a great deal of magical energy. Triskeel informs us that only Iscariot has ever done that. Oh yeah, the last person to pull off that stunt was Judas. Now, I wasn't sure, that's not a biblical reference that I know of, Judas carving a sigil onto a soul. Judas is, of course, a DC Comics character. In the new 52 continuity, the Phantom Stranger is Judas. Whoa, okay. Uh, But I don't think that's true in this particular version of the continuity. Judas did show up as a character in Kid Eternity comic books. Kid Eternity. Yes. This is all well over my head, but okay, Judas exists in the DC universe. Yeah. And is active? He's been, yes, he's been used at various times as a character in the DC universe. Okay. I sort of thought they were just name dropping here for impact. I mean, Judas is in Dante's Inferno, the worst sinner at the very center of hell in the mouth of Satan. So I guess I just thought, you know, if you want a really bad guy reference, Okay, so John cheerfully informs Triskeel and the First that they're never going to find Ellie. You lose again. That's three times I've whipped your horse. Sunshine, round here we call that a hat trick. Triskeel, thinking that the First has been pushed too far and is about to kill John, shouts, No! But he stays his hand for the moment. It's okay, love. He knows the score. He does me and now and he'll be eating shit for the rest of eternity. You're not ready yet, are you? But you're working on it. Soon. I promise. They have another epic, glaring contest, and then the first apparently disappears, leaving John to mutter, Shit. Yeah, again, we can see the development across these panels of their faces as the first looks like he's about to do something, but demurs at the last moment. Yeah, and then he grimaces with the pain of not killing John Constantine. Shit, John says. Forgot to give him the finger. We find Ellie in a room in a hotel. No scar, just like John said, but I... I was torn to pieces. She mentions that sometimes you can see right through John Constantine, other times he's a puzzle. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, another way of reading it would be like, sometimes he does nice things for no reason. Sometimes the manipulation is obvious. Right. Sometimes he seems to be a better person than he pretends to be. She mentions she can never go back to hell. She's sitting in a park now, and a young child comes up and comments, You're very pretty. She thinks. A new heaven. It'll do. It'll have to, says John, coming up behind her. He's not responding to her thoughts. She actually said the last line out loud. She's got kind of an amazing oh shit face. She responded to his thoughts the first time we saw her. It's true. (laughs) I wrote John Constantine is behind you. (laughs) Sorry. A terrifying prospect indeed. She starts to say, so, uh... And he says, so what do you have to do to pay me back? And off panel, he fills her in on the whole plan. You're insane, she says. Nobody has a fruitcake. Let's do it. Good girl. i will get in touch sometime in the new year. And then he says... (laughs) You know, the kid was right. About her being beautiful. Right. And you wonder, she thinks. So this reference to the new year... We had New Year's Eve just a couple of issues back, um, which means apparently somehow another year has passed. I think Hellblazer is supposed to sort of take place in real time, but Garth Ennis has a problem with that. (laughs) Okay. Because his storytelling style tends to be pretty close set. Are we sure that just all these stories haven't happened between Christmas and New Year's? I thought we had New Year's. I remember specifically we had Christmas. I know we had Christmas. Okay. Maybe maybe it's still between Christmas and New Year's. I don't know. Okay. My impression was that we skipped a whole year with the comic trying to catch up to real time. Okay, we have a final scene here. We are back in hell. Triskeel's head is on a spike now. Punishment for failing to catch Ellie in time. And at this point, two characters show up that we have seen very rarely before, but we have seen them. It's Agony and Ecstasy. Yeah, they showed up in an earlier issue of Hellblazer. They also showed up in my favorite issue of Sandman ever. Number four, where he went to hell. Yeah, hell as drawn by uh, Sam Keith. Yeah. They are sort of law enforcers of hell. The last time we saw them, they were carrying off a friend that John had turned into a demon to learn to be a demon over 10,000 years. You can't just be an unlicensed demon. No, you have to take your exams. Yeah, and they are here with... Bad news for the first of the fallen. It is your, uh, third defeat at his hands. According to the law, he is now free, and, uh, you are meant to suffer instead. Uh, he gives them an angry look and claws them apart. Yeah, in the next panel we see their heads flying through the air. Constantine will still be his. He'll wait and plan, and then he'll make his move. And he'll haul the little bastard screaming all the way to hell. The end. In the final panel here we see that where he is is indeed a palace and not a boat. Damn. Yeah. So yeah, he doesn't even give a damn about the law of hell anymore. His vendetta has taken him that far. It's the only thing he cares about now. Huh. What a story, Mark. What do you think of that story? I thought it was fun. I thought it was good. Yeah, it was nice. Definitely setting Ellie up for a larger role in the story. We're finally getting some movement on John versus the First. They both have their plans to deal with each other. That's been working in the background for a long time. Yeah. The First outmaneuvered by John Constantine yet again. Yeah. I'm torn on all of the sort of continuity maintenance. I kind of like seeing how Ennis' world fits together with Gaiman's world. And at some point we're going to get Mike Carey's world. And Alan Moore's world. Mm Mm-hmm. Although Alan Moore was actually building on previously established DC continuity as well. Yeah. So it's nice to see how it all fits together. On the other hand, it it feels kind of inessential in terms of the development of this story of John versus the first. So you're saying that to you, parts of this kind of read as just like housekeeping so that it can be set in the DC universe and you don't really need it to be set in the DC universe to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm not really paying attention to that continuity. It's kind of really interesting, though, that we end up with almost the three-way crossover between Sandman, because now we know how the first ties in with the Sandman characters in Hell, and Hellblazer and Preacher. Yeah, I enjoyed all that. I didn't see it as, like, a drag that we're doing this maintenance or this housekeeping. I sort of thought that it was like, yes, it's keeping continuity straight, but in the fun way. Okay. It's like... Let's come up with fun rationalizations for why somehow this all fits together. Okay. Well, it's nice to see at least we get some of that housekeeping framed in ways that really amp up the threat of the first. You know, he was here before Lucifer, and he has has resented Lucifer for an eternity under his rule in hell. Yeah. I wonder if he will show up in Lucifer comic books as a foe of Lucifer's. That's an interesting thought. I kind of doubt it, though, because from what I've read of Lucifer, so much of it focuses on the relationship between Lucifer and God and the other angels. Okay. Like, it's it's very much about this almost familial relationship, this basically father and son relationship between Lucifer and God. And so the first doesn't really have a role to play in that. Sure. Okay. Oh, but we're not ready to deal with Lucifer yet. I thought the story was cool. I thought the art was good, although again, the kind of the kind of super muscular supermodel look that everybody had gets to be a bit much sometimes. Okay, yeah. I thought the colors were better than we've seen. There's less kind of monocolored pages. Yeah, and there's more like colorful pops even in the scenes that are meant to be sort of mundane. Yeah, we get some more striking use of colors. Ellie's blue kimono when she's fleeing from the first tally set aflame. The blood spatters in the mansion in the last scene. Yeah, I mean, consistently with this team of Will Simpson and Tom Zuiko... There's been good uses of color in the dramatic moments. Mm -hmm. What I think that this story arc does better than we've seen before is interesting uses of color even in the quieter moments. Okay, yeah. It's not like you don't have pages that are just nothing but bland browns and grays. Yeah, and I like particularly the interactions between the first and Triskeel in hell for that. Because they each have a distinctive color scheme, right? The first is very red, Triskeel is like, kind of bright golden with her blonde angelic hair stolen angel face yeah so they when they're interacting with each other they each have a color scheme they each take up a different part of the composition of the page right that's nicely done totally i'm a little disappointed that it's a three-issue storyline and what john does to solve the problem is basically off screen well it's got to be off screen though because it's really gory and and gross i suppose but well but it's not like a thing that we I guess I was gonna say it's not a thing we ever knew that he could do, but we know that he can do masking sigils, so just the idea of imprinting one in a solo is the is the twist. Yeah, and we are sort of told that it takes a lot of power, and it's not entirely clear where that power came from if he's just if he's just really good at magic. Yeah. He's just very talented. There was another thing here we didn't talk about it, but Constantine's place in the DC universe was sort of discussed when Tally and Ellie come to him, and he asks why him. He says it's because no one else would help them out, and he kind of runs through other major mystical figures in the DC world. Yeah. And why they don't fit. The stranger would say they were disrupting the cosmic what's-it and grasp them up to their bosses. The Baron would laugh in their faces. Fate would try to cut their heads off. Yeah. The Baron, of course, being Baron Winter. And Fate being. Dr. Fate. Yeah. It's but, interesting that they kind of represent the higher principles, right? Fate is a warrior for good. The Phantom Stranger particularly maintains the balance. John can be trusted because John is motivated by his self interest. <laughs> right. Not really sure what Baron Winter does. He runs like a team, doesn't he? I'm not really expert on that character. I know we've had references to him before in this book, he hasn't really shown up or done much. Yeah, I think he runs a team of mystical problem solvers called Night Force, (laughs) created by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. Okay. And first appearing in New Teen Titans number 21. All right. The Baron did not participate in the missions and would manipulate, sometimes unethically, others to do so for him. How familiar. Yeah, he maybe is a bit Constantine-like if we're going by that description. I don't know. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the contrast between Kit and Ellie in this story arc. And particularly in the last issue, we get John at home with Kit, contrasted with John in this abandoned mansion, doing something horrifying that we don't really get to see with Ellie. And we've talked before about how Kit has been represented as, like, the happy ending for John, the retirement option. Right, the domestic bliss. Yeah, yeah. And I I sort of have a problem with that because Kit has the potential to be a more interesting, more powerful character. But now we have a direct contrast with a sort of female temptress figure who represents the life and all the crazy shit he can get up to. Yeah, well, it's interesting also that you point out, you call the two of them a contrast, but all either of them does is kind of hang out in a room and wait for John. Yeah. I think Garth Ennis is learning here that if he wants to make better use of his female characters he has to give them solid skill sets which is what we see with tulip later Hmm, that's a good point yeah yeah because tulip resists being just the girlfriend because she has martial competence arguably surpassing even the main character right and also because she straight refuses to be sidelined yeah well we kind of touched on it already but the the sexual politics on display in this story arc are not great Mm, um we've got the first who is kind of constantly perpetuating and implying sexual violence yeah and it's not it's not necessary because it's a hell he can probably come up with some kind of awfulness that has nothing to do with there's no sexual implication well yeah, and and to be fair, like, he never does explicitly yeah. say anything rapey. Yeah. But just the like the fact that the opening pages of the story arc are like a nearly naked man chasing a nearly naked woman around is a hard right a hard image to get out of your head. And again, just the fact that like the female supporting characters are often relegated to just sitting around. Yeah. And also I think there's there's something about the way that sex and pregnancy and birth are portrayed as sort of, as a sort of horror. Mm, okay. Yeah. But also has a a bit of concealed misogyny to it as well. Okay. Yeah. And the fact that the problem is resolved by like cutting Ellie up and there's blood everywhere, you know? Yeah. Although she recovers from that pretty much instantly. She seems fine in the next scene. Yeah. That is a deliberate parallel. I think too, because she spills a lot of blood when she's giving birth in that house in the second issue of this story arc, and again when she's having the sigil cut into her in the third. Yeah, it's also I think a parallel to the the way that he saves her involves shedding a lot of her blood. Mm-hmm. The way that he saves himself involves letting the first shed a lot of his blood in dangerous habits. Mm, yeah, so I think that's an extension. Sort of his, his lungs ripped out and incinerated and replaced. Yeah, right. Exactly. Very. That's very gory as well. Yeah. So there's this recurring, there's this recurring motif of, like, salvation by going through torture. Yeah. there's almost the idea that the first kind of gives birth to John by conjuring him a new body. Maybe. But again, at the same time, I do think that the way that, like, sexuality and motherhood and gore all mix together in this story is a little unsettling. Yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing remarkably subtle about contrasting, like, domestic bliss with a sexy temptress either right that's true so yeah i think we have to i think we have to give this one like a d plus <laughs> in terms of in terms of gender relations yeah fair enough got a constantine moment like my most constantine moment i think is just the fact that both constantine and the first of the fall and i said this already i yeah i really need to start saving these for the end But my Constantine moment is the fact that Constantine and the First of the Fallen are both haunted by mental images of what a dick Constantine is. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) The ghost of Constantine turning up to be rude to both of them. Right, yeah. I want to call out the moment where John is just, completely unimpressed and utterly a douchebag to the literal angel and pregnant demon that have shown up on his doorstep. Like, that's not shocking at all. Time for some jokes. (laughs) Right. Yeah, he keeps bringing back that Christmas Eve joke. And it's like, you're not going to make it funnier (laughs) by bringing it back up again. Well, that's like really interesting in light of the fact that we have no idea whether this baby ever turns out to be a thing in Hellblazer. Right. Right. Like the very unsubtle suggestion that a messiah of some kind is being born here may or may not actually be born out in this comic book a messiah or a horror yeah i mean he says that it's the scream of the thing that was never meant to be is is the awful the, sound most yeah. imprinted on his memory the most haunting thing that he's heard yeah so yeah but maybe that'll come back up in the future maybe, yeah. maybe we'll see that baby again yeah maybe, maybe it'll throw fireballs that's a very specific well okay also in terms of like plot power, just the fact that he is able to discover Ellie in the Thames kind of completely at random. Yeah, that was pretty weird. He follows her tracks. Apparently he's a tracker like Daryl Dixon now. <laughs> he's at the river for no reason to begin with, and then he like sees some tracks in the mud. If the river is so low you can walk hmm. in the mud, those could be anybody's tracks. Ah, <laughs> oh, me supporting characters. <laughs> <laughs> So he just he just knows her shoes <laughs> on sight. <outside. laughs> well, she you did say that she has clawed feet. Maybe uh maybe it was evident from the tracks that they were left by a clawed foot. See that actually makes sense because I think she's seen to be barefoot when she runs away. Yeah, totally. Okay, yeah. So maybe that's what it is. Could be. Well, in our next Hellblazer episode, join us for a special celebration as John Constantine hits forty. But first, join us next week for Preacher and a Tale of the Irish in America. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you enjoy the show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguise.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. If you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can reach me at vertigize. You can reach me at BlankCastSean. Search Vertigize on Facebook. And you can send us an email at vertigize@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to leave us a positive rating or review on whatever podcast listening software you're using, or you can recommend us in person to a person, which is another great way of spreading the word about Vertigas. Yeah, persons are really the audience we're going for here. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. I mean, if the show is very popular among cats, I'm not going (laughs) to, you know, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, if a thousand cats love the show, that's all it takes. If it's popular among horses, you know... (laughs) Whatever. I think some people would be very angry to discover that we have become popular among the horse demographic. Oh, do you mean PK? Yeah, I do. Not a fan. Thanks, everybody. (sighs) Thanks for listening. Sean, did you know about the song Godzilla by Blue Oyster Cult? Yes. Do I have to do everything myself? You didn't tell me! (laughs) I didn't think you were interested in Blue Oyster Cult or Godzilla. Sean, that song is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) All right.